Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Imam Zaid Shekhar. Imam Zaid is a prominent American Muslim scholar and co-founder of Zaytuna College. He has taught courses in Arabic, Islamic spirituality, contemporary Muslim thought, Islamic history and politics, and Shafi'i fiqh at the college. He speaks and writes on a wider range of topics, and he travels frequently across the United States to support institution-building projects in the Muslim community. In 2007, he was a signatory of the 2007 letter, A Common Word Between Us and You, an appeal for peace and cooperation between Christians and Muslims, and in 2016, he presided over the public memorial of Muhammad Ali, rest in peace. Uh, You could read a longer bio of Imam Zaid uh, in the episode notes, along with all of the uh, links to his social media profile. Imam Zaid is a huge figure in my life personally. He has had a tremendous impact on me. I don't want to you know, be too sentimental or, or too emotional in the introduction. But one thing that I can say that summarizes his impact on me is that my first uh, born son is named Zaid after Imam Zaid. And I, uh, we did that proudly. And, and we, every time I call on my son, I remember all of the lessons that Imam Zaid taught me and my wife. He had a tremendous uh, influential role right when I first got married. I'm forever grateful for everything that he has taught me. I'm very happy that he gave me this time out of his extremely busy schedule uh, to drop some of the gems that you are about to listen to. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation, hopefully this first conversation, with none other than Imam Zaid. So Imam Zaid, welcome to the show. Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah to you and all of your listeners and viewers. Wa alaikum warahmatullah. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're super busy. And uh, I'm going to just jump right in, in no particular order. Uh, the first thing I thought of when I wanted to, to interview you, uh, I wanted to ask you the following question, which is, I remember many years ago, uh, when you were still in New Haven and, and uh, we were coming up frequently from D.C. to spend time with you, I remember you taught me this very important lesson, which is there was like a, uh, a person who in our area, in the Washington, D.C. area, who was having some legal difficulties. Uh, and he's not, let's say, from you know, our uh, camp in Islam. You know, he's from another persuasion. And you told me uh, in these type of matters, it's very important that, you, you know, we don't distinguish between people, that a Muslim is a Muslim. And if somebody is, is unjustly persecuted, if somebody is being attacked, regardless of our disagreements with them inside the family of Islam, we have to come to their support. And that's something that really 
uh, kind of left an imprint on me because it's very easy to be tribal in the way we look at things. Oh, you know, this person doesn't belong to my madhab. This person doesn't belong to my tariqah. This person's, you know, he's a Salafi, not at this, not at that. And I think that that can trip us up sometimes. Now, I think you probably told me this, you know, I want to say maybe even like 15 years ago, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And now looking at the landscape, I think maybe we need that lesson again. So I thought maybe it'd be nice to start there if you can comment on that, the importance of us being, especially in this country, one community, essentially, and really needing to come together. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Yeah, I think definitely there are parameters that kind of delineate the outer limits of who is a Muslim. And, and certainly those things are very real. Uh, but even there, sometimes the general public doesn't uh, recognize that. So we have to be very careful because we, we might see ourselves defending the pure Islam by not coming to the defense of party A, B, C, or D. But in reality, uh, Muslims come off looking divided and uh, filled with uh, uh, not just divisions, but deep uh, hatred in some instances towards each other, as opposed to the single uh, unified ummah that attracted so many of us, including myself, to Islam in the first place. When I converted, uh, one of the things that frustrated me about Christianity, you had the Jehovah Witnesses, they're reaching out and trying to get you, uh, the evangelicals are trying to get you, the Catholics are trying to get you. The uh, Seventh-day Adventists are trying to get you. And, and they're pulling you. You feel so pulled in all these directions. And I, well, what is the true Christianity? And then you read about Islam in theory. So you, and most of us who convert, uh, many times we read first. Or we made a very idealistic Muslim. Who, whose idealism pushes them to want to share the religion in the first place. Oh, it's one ummah. There it is in the Quran. And, and it becomes very powerful, a, a very powerful attraction. Uh, and when you get involved with it and you start to discover that Muslims have their own version of the Jehovah Witnesses and the Evangelicals and the Pentecostals and the Catholics and the Baptists and you can you can begin to uh, feel that that feeling that pushed you towards Islam starting to dissipate and the only way that I find to avoid that feeling is by constantly reinforcing to myself the, the unity of this ummah so we can settle into these various camps. We have to realize at the end of the day, we are one ummah. 1400 years of history has preserved the fundamental parameters of that, that ummah, of that one ummah. All of us pray five prayers, Sunni, Shayi, Zaidi, Ithnashariya, Maliki, Shafi, all pray Sufi, Salafi, we pray five prayers. We pray them at the same time. We have the same uh, methodology for Juma. None of us for, for the Juma prayer uh, do the, the, the prayer before the Kutbah, like Eid. And then Eid, it's the opposite, all of us, without exception. 
and we we have one mushaf we have one quran we have you know i went to iran and i was looking for mushaf fatima and i never came across it i only came across the masahif that were printed in beirut like the ones i had at home and and so that's an incredible historical accomplishment that just the basic parameters of, of our religion that are shared by all of those who identify themselves as, as Muslim have been preserved. And so we shouldn't allow the, and, but on the other hand, after 1400 years, now pushing 1450 years of history, there are going to be uh, varying interpretations, except especially on those issues that are amenable to interpretation. There are going to be various points of emphasis. There are going to be uh, different political orientations. It's inevitable after such a long period of time, but we should never overlook the miraculous nature of the basic foundations of our unity being there. Uh, none of us claims that Hajj is other than the time that Hajj occurs of the months of the Hijjah and the Hijjah. None of us says no, Hajj starts in Muharram. And so all of the Muslims with all of their differences come to one place at the same time, not this year, but <laughs> most years. And so we have to honor that uh, historical miracle, which is an affirmation of the truthfulness of the Quran and the truthfulness of the promise of the Prophet by trying to preserve it as much as we can and by showing a unified front uh, to the public. Otherwise, those who disagree with the fundamentals we agree on will divide us on the differences that might occur between us. And then we can have the tragic situations that we see in many parts of the Muslim world, not as tragic here in this country, but we still have our, our tragic instances of, of disunity and enmity, bitterness occurring between Muslims. So to pick up on that, one of the things I've heard you being called the people's imam, and that's how I like to think of Imam Zaid, you know, as the people's oh, wow. imam. And what I, Imam Siraj is still with us, so Alhamdulillah. I'll, I'll be the JV people. <laughs> but one Imam of, Siraj is the varsity. Okay, well, I, well, I'll give you that. But but what we mean with that is that we always see Imam Zaid everywhere with any type of group, any organization. In other words, even in your practice. Uh, and I don't. I'm not saying this just to, to praise you, but I'm saying this because I want to learn. You know the secrets of this. You don't have a problem speaking with this group or speaking with that group. And more importantly, they want you. They're the ones that are inviting you. But yet you maintain your, um, you know, traditional Sunni core outlook. Uh, and it, that, you know, th that effort doesn't seem to impede on your identity. And I think what happens for people like me or, or others, uh, I'll just speak for myself, is there's always this fear, oh, I don't want to go to this group because I don't want to be considered that. I don't want to go to that group because I don't want to be considered that. And you kind of get, you trip yourself up. One of the last things I was told before I left Azhar and I came back to the States is my, one of my teachers told me, he's like, you have to let uh, the Sharia, meaning, you know, the Quran and the Sunnah, always be your outward speech such that you can attract the most amount of Muslims. You never, you, you don't lead 
with with the madhab you don't lead with the tariqa you don't lead with you know this school of uh, within the ash'ari pair you don't lead like that that those are academic differences but when you do your public work you have to cater to, to the to most people what what are your uh skill sets or what are the secrets of, of how you do that you know what 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 are, what are you telling yourself when you're out there speaking with a group that you know you probably have some differences with but you know that you need to do that work because you have to call people to this faith uh alhamdulillah uh any differences i might have with a muslim uh as long as those differences don't push that person outside of the pale of islam that's my muslim brother and my muslim sister and my first uh, obligation is to the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and not to the particular group that I might have most uh, affinity towards. And so I, I think it's very important to recognize that. Also, as you mentioned, to look at the people that we reference and our teachers. Like a lot of people who are, for lack of a better term, anti-Sufi, reference Ibn Taymiyyah. What was Ibn Taymiyyah's position against Tasawwuf? And many would argue he was a, a practicing Qadiri. Sure. And, uh, and uh, he was buried in the Sufi cemetery in Damascus. And in fact, his grave and his mother's grave and his servants, there are only graves left there. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and we know the, the ninth volume of the Fatawa is all Tasawwuf. Uh, and he, he has a commentary on Futuh uh, al-Ghayb of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, whom he praises as his Sheikh. And so the people we reference in many, in many instances for this, that, or the other position themselves didn't uh, embrace the, the thing that we're using them to justify or the, the orientation or position we're using them to justify. And so we have to look at the fullness of our scholarly legacy. The second thing is that our teachers, as you mentioned, your teachers told you not to go back and lead with this. There was a, a, uh, an instance with Sheikh Abdurrahman Shaguri, who was uh, one of the greatest Sufi sheikhs of his generation in, in Damascus. And I witnessed this, I was there, where one of the students who had studied there in Damascus was going back, I forget the country, it was an English speaking country, so it was either the United States or the United Kingdom. And he, he said to the Sheikh, he said, Sidi, uh, in, in our masjid and our town where, where I'm going back to, there's one masjid and everyone's there, the Akhwan is there, Hizb tahrir is there, not just Sufis, but Naqshibandis are there, Shadilis are there, Qadiris are there, Chistis are there, and Salafis are there, and I, I'm afraid if I go back and teach what I learned here and teach the tariqah, I'm just going to add to the confusion. And Shaykh Abdul Rahman said to him, you don't go back and call to the tariqah with your tongue. You go back and you call to the tariqah with your stake. Mm. And, and people, people will recognize any virtue in you based on your state, not on your words. And so don't go back and add to the confusion with your word. Go back and give clarity with your state. And, and this, was, this was the orientation of our teachers. They never said go back and confuse people or go back and try to impose something in a, that you might 
feel very strongly about that you studied here for years. But back there, it's only going to add to confusion. It's only going to create arguments and disputations. And that's not your role. Your role is to mend hearts. Your role is to heal rifts and divisions. Your role is totally different. So to, and none of them said that per se, but that was a, a, a lesson that mm -hmm. one perceived from them. Do you think, uh, you know, now in, in the year that we are in, you know, whether it's the United States or the English speaking Muslim world, do you think we're closer or f farther from that reality? I mean, I think we're much, much closer. You, you don't see, generally speaking, the kind of vitriol that you saw, for example, in the mid and late 90s and to the early 2000s between, you know, the just hardcore uh, tearing down of others. You see advocacy for certain positions, but you don't see as much uh, vitriol directed at those who don't hold those positions. And I think you see a lot of uh, uh, joint efforts between people of various uh, orientations, working together on common, common causes, common, common platforms. So I think this situation is vastly improved in that regard. Imam Zaid, in your essay, uh, The Making of a Muslim, which is in the book, uh, Scattered, Scattered Pictures, mm -hmm. uh, which is really beautiful. I, I hope people get a chance to read it. One of the things that you mention is you talk about in your early journey to Islam, being influenced by a, a type of political activism, partly fueled by your own interest in, in politics, but also fueled by the Iranian revolution as a model and then also influenced by a type of Salafi perspective. Uh, now moving beyond those specific names, I, I think a lot of us in our personal journey, we, we kind of oscillate between, I want to do something. I want to do something about, with my Islam, with the world around me, versus I want a pure Islam. But then you say this one line, you say, after you know, arguing about these, you say, it was in Syria that I discovered my humanity. As I saw it, my mother was right in her assessment of our neighborhood who had joined the nation of Islam. True manhood was not to be found in an ideology, and I had been approaching Islam as an ideology. It was to be found, as she expressed it, coming to grips with life as a human being. Can you comment a little bit about that? I mean, what, what does that mean for you know, a young person today? How do they come to grips with the world around them? How do they find their humanity? And, and why, <clears throat> why was it in Syria that that became such a, a, pivotal, a pivotal change in your life or your journey? Yeah, I, I think what, what I'm saying there is that the, the impact that you leave on the world and in all likelihood, it, it's not going to be based on uh, the purity of an idea that you might hold. Because in many instances, the purer the idea, the more divisive it is. And the more divisive it is, the smaller amount of open-minded people it's going to, to appeal to. You're going to leave a mark on the world based on how you affected the hearts of other human beings. And we can't begin, and this was our Prophet وسلم, I, I had a webinar, participated in a webinar last night, and I mentioned that, uh, it's relevant to this point. 
Anyway, the the point escapes me. But uh, how how we uh, or the Prophet the point his his followers they weren't called mutalimin, uh, they weren't called students, they weren't called talaba or tulab, they weren't called yani darisin, they were called sahaba. Mm. And so their their orientation and outlook on the world was shaped by the time they spent with him and to the degree to which his heart affected their heart. And as we know, the, the revelation is described as descending upon the heart of the Prophet He brings it to your heart. And so the, the, the heart and the qualities of the heart, the qualities of the soul, that's what makes us human. And that spiritual humanity, because physically we're no different than a monkey, as an ox, a pig. We're very close to a pig. And so when in high school we dissect a pig fetus because the organ systems are so close to the human. Sure. So physically, we're not distinguished. We're distinguished based on the, the qualities that humanize us. And so when I said getting in, getting in touch with my humanity is, is getting in touch with those qualities and those characteristics that make us unique and distinct. And so our impact on the world is going to be based on the degree to which we can share those qualities with others not to the degree, the degree to which we can share a pure idea with others. So purity of ideas is very, very important. It's very important. But in terms of how we affect others, it's the purity of the heart. And so the Prophet wasallam, his heart affected others. It was his heart that affected others. And the Quran flowed through his heart. And the Quran was not, and it's a beautiful point to reflect on. The Quran was not the product of the Prophet's intellect, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It was something from beyond this world that was introduced to the world via his heart. And that was the foundation from which he shared it to the world. And if, if we cannot cultivate those qualities, this past Juma, I, I mentioned in, in the context of what I was talking about, the, the mercy of the Prophet ﷺ was what brought the Ummah together. So owing to the mercy of Allah, you were gentle with them. So Allah's mercy that the mercy of Allah that encompasses everything encompassed the Prophet or was embodied in the Prophet. And then he وسلم, shared that with the world. And, but his ability to share that wasn't based on the power of that message. It was based on his ability to treat people well. And so not if your idea wasn't as pure as it is, if, if your articulation of the Qur'an didn't come just as purely as it did. No, if you were crude and coarse of heart, 
hard-hearted and didn't treat people right, they would have fled away from you and they wouldn't have listened to that pure idea. And so I think it's very important for us to, and, and so what was that? That was his humanity, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The beauty of you and the mercy you embody as a purified human being is what brought the people to you and which is what opened their heart to be receptive to your message. And so that, that human beauty has to be, uh, has to radiate from us and then people will be receptive to the beautiful ideas that Islam uh, comprises. But if, if we can't get to that level of humanity, then it's not going to happen. How many people have been re repulsed by the Salafi that beats you over the head and don't want to listen to the pure Aqidah? And you can say the same, the Sufi that beats you over the head, my tariqah, and we're the right ones. We have to stop these Wahhabi deviants from spreading their petrol dollar fueled poison all over the world. And people like, you know, I can't get down with that. It's too harsh. Mm, mm. And so they're not thinking about the purity of this idea or the purity of that creed. They're thinking about the, the, the harshness and the meanness of the person himself or herself. And so that's why I think it's so important for us to get in touch with our humanity first and foremost then we can be effective emissaries for the ideas that we hold. Imam Zaid, you, talking about harshness, one of the things that you say in that essay is you talk about the impact visiting uh, Hama had on you and, and sort of this maybe nostalgic idea of revolution and you know, some type of political, you know, seeing the destruction of, of Hama. I mean, this is a far stretch, I, what I'm about to say, but do you think I mean, what you're, what you're saying, which of course I, I agree, I agree in with 100%, I mean, you know, you're one of my teachers, but it seems that it, it takes a lot of hard work to work on yourself. And in many respects, I find it's, it, it, people find it easier just to say, oh, you know, we have to do some kind of social change. Do you think, one of the things I'm scared of is I think a lot of Muslims in this country are too focused on that type of social change. Not that it's revolutionary, I'm not, I mean, it's a far stretch from that, but are, are forgetting the change that has to happen within. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? Do you think that that's part of the problem that we have today or, or a point of improvement? Well, uh, I, I can't comment on people, especially people in other lands, like the pressures that they're under and, and how those pressures might lead them to, to behave in ways that we might not find uh, to be ideal. And the same thing here, people are under various pressures. People have been taught certain things, especially now there's, there's definitely, there are certain orientations, uh, not hegemonic as some people might argue, uh, but definitely influential in our system of higher education that orients people towards a certain type of activism and Muslims who are going through these uh, universities and colleges aren't immune uh, from the kind of socialization that those ideas might breed. I do think that we have to try to start to strike a balance and that our religion is predicated on a balance. 
you know, uh, the 143rd verse in a chapter of 286 verses to drive the point home that we, we're a moderate thing. Our challenge is not to uh, delegitimize or to neglect altogether the socio-political struggles that people might be engaged in or the activism that defines that engagement, I, I think is to balance it, first of all, to, to try to ensure that we are putting the message of Islam out there so that the foundations of that activism reflect the teachings of the religion. But secondly, that the activism is balanced with the, the spiritual development and the personal development and that we don't neglect one for the sake of the other, but we see them as being mutually uh, reinforcing. So I, I think that's the, that's the real challenge, just finding that balance and not necessarily we have to go into a cocoon until we can uh, develop and evolve into these beautiful creatures who know how to engage politically. Because unfortunately, we're not butterflies, so we can't go into that cocoon. Things are happening all around us, uh, and we are affected by and sometimes feel driven and pushed to respond to those things. And, and so that's undeniable. So I think the challenge is finding the balance so that we can respond in ways that are most reflective of our religion. And I think that's, that's the challenge, not kind of, we're gonna do all this, you're just gonna be activists and forget those Sufis who just wanna be quiet and quietist and pietistic and want to divorce themselves from the society. We don't want that extreme, but on the other hand, I think we don't want the extreme of just, we need to just step back and do nothing and say nothing. I think we need to make sure we're studying and learning the religion to the best of our ability. We're working on ourselves and we're, we're always a work in progress. Even if the, uh, I know you've taught Imam Shabrawi's uh, degrees of the soul, Marat bin Nafs. So we're, we're in that stage. We're going from the, the Nafs al-Bahimiyya Shahwaniyya and the Nafs al-Lawwama and the Nafs al-Mulhama and Mutma'inna, Radiya, Mardiya, Kamila. And some of, we're somewhere in there, hopefully towards that higher end of the spectrum. But we're all a work in progress spiritually. And while we're doing that work, things happen in our lives that might, uh, evoke a response from us. So I think the, the real challenge is re continually deepening our knowledge of the religion so that the, the responses that are evoked from us are responses that are qualified by the directives of, of our religion and uh, we, we forge on. Imam Zaid, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you uh, about race, uh, but let me let me just preface that with one of the things. Uh, just you know, in preparing for this conversation with you, one of the things uh, actually I, I feel like I almost read it for the first time is you talked about growing up in Georgia uh, and how there was a point in 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 time where everybody around you was black. 
In other words, you, you never really met a white person. You said until, uh, unless my mom took me to town or I think Atlanta. Yeah, downtown. Yeah, Atlanta. That's right. You know, your classmates, your friends, your neighbors, uh, your teachers. And then when you move to Connecticut, it's almost as if, uh, you know, one white family after another is replaced in the neighborhood by, you know, a black or, or Puerto Rican family. And there's a lot of a lot of minority groups will say that I, not that there's any comparison whatsoever, but I remember being, you know, the only Muslim in my school, the only Muslim in my class, you know, the only Muslim in my neighborhood. And I'm sure, the, you know, a Jewish family, you know, their parents or grandparents will say, you know, I grew up in Baltimore and we were in a completely Jewish neighborhood and we never met with another non-Jew, etc. So in light of what's happening, I mean, the conversation is not about the current political crisis and Black Lives Matters and things like that, but because it's on everyone's mind, it got me thinking, what, if we had to assess the problem that we have in, 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 in our community in North America, how bad is the race problem within the Muslim community? You know, that, like all questions, there, there, there are nuances and, and complexities to be considered. Uh, because, you know, I, I, and I, I mentioned this to a young activist recently, and, you know, they were implying that there should be more African rep African American representation on their master board. And I said, well, how many African American families are in the community? And uh, he said, uh, maybe 5%. It's a 95% Arab Desi community. Mm. I said, I, I said, personally, I would be uncomfortable with seeing 50% of the board being African-American <laughs> because it, it doesn't reflect the reality of the community. Mm. And, uh, and on the other hand, if we had an inner city masjid in inner city, Baltimore somewhere, or Newark, New Jersey, where most of the people, Muslims in the neighborhood and most of the Muslims frequenting the masjid were 80 75, 80% African-American, I think it would be extremely unrealistic that the board would be uh, 90, 80% non-African-American. Mm. And so I think there are certain demographic realities that lead to some of the imbalances that we point out. And that's not to dismiss the reality that there are some people who, for one reason or another, owing to their upbringing, owing to the way that uh, their upbringing uh, bequeathed unto them certain implicit biases, to use that language, uh, that's, that's real. Uh, but it doesn't negate uh, the good. And so, for example, someone you might know because they're, they're from the DC, Virginia, when, when uh, our brother Omari Gray was in a terrible accident, and, and they thought he was going to pass. He's miraculously recovering from it. Uh, but he left a wife and 10 children. And he, they started a launch good program, uh, campaign rather. And he, he, they raised over a million dollars in three or four days for his family. Most of that million dollar came from what we might call our immigrant brothers and sisters. Mm. And, and so you see that kind of thing. You see in Oakland, we had a, a Zakat program with two of the suburban masjids that in the course of a few years distributed over $300,000 to the poor communities 
in, in Oakland. So, you know, it, it, it's easy to, to point out the, the negative things and they're real, we need to work on them. But I think it's, it's very, very important for us to, to point out the positive things that are, that are happening, that have happened, uh, to, part, to point out the, the success stories, to point out the, the communities. And they're not, not just in New Jersey where you have Sheikh Mendez, he's presiding over a masjid that is overwhelmingly Desi from what I understand, but it's definitely not an African-American, anything close to an African-American uh, majority. And he's the imam of the masjid. And so despite the, and, and he's not alone. Uh, one of the most influential masjids in, in Oakland, California, that's primarily the main population there are, are Yemenis. They have an African-American imam who studied in Yemen. Mm. And, and so that's not to dismiss the, the reality. There are problems, but as Muslims, as we look at the problems, we can't fail to look at the progress. Because if we only look at the problems, we could get a, a distorted view of reality. And, and if we only look at the progress, we can also get a distorted view. And so again, it's striking the balance between the problems and the progress. So we have enough optimism to fuel our hopes. So we're not, uh, we shouldn't be trapped in a, in a framework uh, presented by the likes of uh, 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 Professor Derek Bell. I was a law professor at Harvard, very influential in, in forming the, the ideological or the intellectual scaffolding for critical race theory. That, that race is endemic, it's never going to, the problem in America is, is it can't be solved. And that's, that's not a Muslim attitude. If Allah wants to solve it, he says, be and it is, it's solved. Hmm. And, and so as, as Muslims, we are optimists. We look at the glass and we see it half full. And so in, in looking at the problem of, of race within our community, there are definitely issues. Uh, but in, in looking at those issues, de 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 developing strategies to overcome them, we have to look at the issue in its fullness. We have to look at the demographic realities of that community, we have to look at the barriers to exclusion or the barriers uh, or the, uh, the practices and attitudes that might lead to uh, certain groups being marginalized and then begin to address those issues and, and not set up a framework for if you're a member of one group or another, you're, you're an African-American Muslim and you're, so you're just coming here to beg for money. I know a lot of very wealthy, well-off, affluent African-American Muslims. You know, everyone isn't kind of uh, in, in a, a lower economic, socioeconomic status. If, if you're an immigrant Muslim, you're a racist, whether you acknowledge it or not, and, and, or you're privileged. And again, there are a lot of immigrant Muslims struggling, especially more recently where you have kind of a war refugees, the Bantu Somalis, uh, the Iraqis, Kurds who are coming. In many instances with nothing, the Syrians, 
living in inner city communities, hearing so many gunshots, they're, they're just as traumatized as they were back in the village they fled from, you know, struggling to get on their feet with no real social support network. And it's, and it's very difficult. You know, I know, I heard of, of immigrants, kids cutting themselves. Mm because their situation is so desperate and, and they're, they're so deeply frustrated. And so all immigrants are not wealthy. Uh, all immigrants don't enjoy some uh, economic privilege. Uh, all African-Americans are not poor. And so I think we just, we need to look at our situation as a community. At many of our communities, are there, there are, very small African-American minorities, Muslimized. And, and it's unrealistic to say we should, there should be equal representation on the master board. That, that's not realistic. You have three African-American families in that community and, and you're saying three families should have 50% of the board. And so I think we, we have to look realistically at our situation, identify the prejudices, the biases that might be present and, and try to find out what leads to them and how they can be constructively addressed. Look at uh, every case as an individual case, that we're, we're not uh, looking at our situation as Muslims in terms of the, the racial biases and prejudices that might exist in our ranks from, from a, a, a sort of Marxist, you have conflicting groups, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the privileged and the oppressed, and everyone can be pigeonholed into neatly into one group or another based on their race. That, that's not how society works, and that's not how Islam looks at society. We look at individuals. We're going to stand before Allah individually. No bur bear burdens can bear the burden of another. Uh, we don't uh, uh, disparage an entire group because of the sins of a, of a single individual. And so I think we have to look at the fullness of our situation. Acknowledge, yes, there are attitudes that could only be defined and described as racist. But looking at that on a case-by-case -case basis, analyzing that on a case-by-case -case basis, so we don't become guilty of what we're uh, accusing others of, of disparaging, denigrating, looking down on an entire group based on the actions or the reality of some individuals amongst that group. So we have a lot of work to do, and, and we can benefit from the approaches of others. So I'm not saying that. We, uh, Muslims have been the most assimilative civilization in human history. And Allah placed us in, in, in a position to do that. So it was actually Islam that brought the, the Taoist and Confucian civilization of China into conversation with the Persian civilization and brought that into conversation with the Hellenistic legacy of, of Europe, found, Hellenistic foundation of European civilization and brought that, them into conversation with the, the Sanskrit uh, civilizations, the Indian and others, India and, and geographical India, 
and brought them all into conversation. And then Islam itself benefited the Buddhists in Central Asia. It was the Muslims that brought all of these civilizations in conversation and then provided a platform where the Muslims could benefit from all of them. And so we, we're assimilative. We're not afraid of ideas. And so if we find some benefit, wisdom is the lost property of the Muslim. We find some benefit in something like critical race theory. We can identify the dangers of it in terms of theological dangers, but we can also find some insights that might help us with, to address our situ situation. We might find insights from uh, the, the great sociological work of the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois. We not, might not identify with everything he says, but if we think we can approach the race question in America and, and not take any look at the souls of black folks or uh, reconstruction, uh, black reconstruction, and, and not benefit, then we're, we're, we're depriving ourselves of something that Muslims never deprived ourselves of historically, and that's the ability to benefit from the ideas and the methodologies of others. <clears throat> so I, I, I hear you, Memzaid, uh, but just specifically, a lot of where, this, where these questions are coming from is over the summer, I felt a lot of pressure, you know, from my community that we have to do something. And, you know, here I am, okay, there's a pandemic, you know, we're not even praying Juma, we're doing it on Zoom. And I mean, what, what, what we have, we're one of those suburban mosques that, that doesn't have many African-American families. Ironically, most of my personal students are either African or African-American. Uh, That's because you're, you're, you have African roots. I Last time African. I checked, Egypt was in Africa. Yeah, mo most Egyptians forget that, but like I always say, we are African. Um, but we do have some African families uh, uh, from uh, West African, West Africans, and they are on the board. Um, but I kind of felt like, okay, I got to do something. What, what am I supposed to do? And and it's just that pressure. I think it's the dominant culture and the news cycle, you know, putting pressure on us. We have to do something too. Let's put up a Black Lives Matter sign at the mosque. Let's see, even though we're not at the mosque because you know we've been shut down for, for several months. <laughs> and it just becomes like this ridiculous, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not pushing back. I'm just saying, you know, you're, mashallah, being optimistic. Yeah, well, you can, you, can, you can push back. But, and, but, but I, let me address that specific issue. You said specifically, I have to do something. I think a lot of times we envision what we have to do as being so grand have to go and participate in the revolution that's going to overthrow the racist <laughs> caste hierarchy in this country once and for all, that it ends up paralyzing us. Because that's so grand and big and unrealistic to just start up there that we end up doing nothing. So if you want to do something, you know, uh, make sure that the barriers to full inclusion in the masjid whenever it opens are eliminated so that any west african east african african-american uh, family or individual who comes into the masjid is welcomed completely uh brother in brotherly and sisterly fashion uh if you want to do something uh 
get involved in, in your local uh, efforts to help in, in your, the, the, the area and the closest area rather that has a significant African-American population and volunteer time in the, the tutoring programs. Organize the MSA to, to set up such a program if one doesn't exist. Uh, make sure that when uh, uh, a, a, you're looking for a wife, your handsome son, if, if, if the sister he really likes is three or four shades darker than you are, that you don't dismiss her immediately because you don't want brown babies. You know, make sure that that's, that's something that doesn't happen in, in your family. Uh, consider uh, supporting uh, programs that, that are helping to educate and empower uh, youth in your local community, sports programs, you know, get involved or help to finance recreation programs that are keeping uh, uh, kids out of the streets. And so in other words, what can you do not just that to address the institutional and structural racism. That's an ongoing project. Yeah. And that's a, that's a nut no one has cracked yet in American history. There's progress, but also, so don't neglect that. Do whatever you can in that realm. But what can you do in the realm you can control? You can control who your children marry and make sure the decision is not made based on some racist criteria that has nothing to do with Islam. You can control uh, where you volunteer with the little bit of spare time you might have. You can control where you direct your money. Set up a Zakat program. Get in touch with one of the inner city messages. And like this something we did, we've done in Oakland, this is something that's happening in Eastern, Southeastern Michigan and the Detroit area. This is something that's happened in various parts of the country where the, the zakat is supposed to be sent overseas, send, send charity, sadaqah. But zakat is more rightfully spent in the area where that wealth is, is collected and earned. So work to set up a program where resources are being directed towards underserved communities. If you're a doctor, set up a clinic in some of these neighborhoods especially if, if we see the total gutting of the Affordable Care Act, that they're not going to have access to any health care. Mm. If you're a doctor, set up a gather your, your, your Muslim friends, your Muslim immigrant-based friends. They might be second generation, hence immigrant-based, and set up a clinic in some of those neighborhoods. Uh, like I said, set up an educational program. Working with the local masjid there, who's familiar with the people, you're not, uh, but is helping to uh, address the, the educational disparity between inner city communities where the spending per child might be one third of what's being spent in an adjacent suburb. Uh, go to the, the Muslim owned stores and encourage them to get alcohol out of their stores and, and set up a program where you supplement uh, or you help to provide other uh, products, uh, fresh produce that are in high demand in the community there and will help to offset some of the financial losses of not selling alcohol. And so what can we do at 
a, 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 a street level? What can we do at a, a familial level in addition to the ongoing struggle at the, at the institutional level to address the racism? So that's what I would say specifically to that urge to do something. Don't make what you need to, uh, to do so lofty that it paralyzes you. I, we need to change the uh, racist institutions and structures. Uh, that's an ongoing challenge and problem. And no one's done it yet completely. There's been progress, undoubtedly. No one's addressed that issue. But in the meantime, while you're thinking about that or getting involved in some rudimentary steps towards eradicating uh, those ins racist institutions, what can you do on the ground? What can you do in your dealings with people on a day-to-day -day basis to begin to make things better for people? And, and even if it's one, there's the starfish story, the boys throwing the starfish after the storm. The old man sees him, you can't save all the starfish and the boy looks him in the eye and he reaches down and he grabs a starfish and throws it back in the ocean. And he said, I saved that one. So don't allow your, your ability, your inability to save all of the starfishes. Don't allow your inability to change any uh, racist, institutional racism that might exist in a particular police department. Don't allow your inability to change the, the, the racism that leads to the, the uh, political shenanigans and voter re, uh, suppression that we see going on right now. Don't allow your, your inability to change those big things immediately right now paralyze you from doing anything to change the little things that inshallah will add up to a big difference in our society. So Imam Zaid, you, you speak a lot about change. And one of the things you talked about, I mean, just linking back to something we said earlier about Syria, you said when, when they recorded your name, you know, in the Mahad, you know, uh, you know, Zaid Sheikh and Amriki, and that you realized, you know, oh, I am, I am an American and, and I have to, you know, I got to do something. Sorry, you were saying? And Zaid bin Donald. Zaid bin Donald, yeah. Zaid bin Donald al-Ambiki. And you talk about, you know, that's when you start to realize you, when you go back to the States, inshallah, you, you need to make America a little bit better, et cetera. And one way you've done that, just one out of many, you know, is, is joining Zaytuna. Uh, and I know that for, maybe it's been over a decade now, I think that uh, it's been a, a big part of your life and you've been a big part of that institution. It's 2003. So oh my God! Well over a okay, mashallah, mashallah. Okay, we're all, almost on twenty years now. I guess we're, we're, I'm getting old. Um, I remember when Zaytuna was. We're all getting old. <laughs> Zaytuna was in Hayward, and uh, the Rukua tree and the yurt, and you know all of those early days of Zaytuna, and and mashallah, it's 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 morphed into this you know large institution, one of the institutions that as Muslim Americans, uh, you know, we're proud of and and large. But you, you've been, a, a, you know, in that process of transformation. How have you found that, you know, building an institute, you know, going from what it was to, you know, what it's becoming and then hopefully what, what it will become more in the future. What has that process been like for you personally to be involved in something like this? I think it, it, it shows, and I encourage all of you to support Zaytuna, so please. <laughs> I will definitely include a link, a link for that, without doubt. Uh, no, it's an important project. It's, it's more than myself. It's more than Sheikh Hamza. It's more than Dr. Hatem Bezian. 
as, as the co-founders, uh, it's an institution that, alhamdulillah, has grown. It's an accredited educational institution. It's an institution that has sent graduates in more recent years as we refined our curriculum and enhanced and improved our faculty to Harvard, University of Chicago, more than one student, full, two full scholarships to University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign Ur 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 Law School, which is a $99,000 scholarship, $33,000 a year. Uh, Georgetown, and many other uh, very prestigious universities, college, UC Berkeley, graduate and professional programs. We have two students in medical school, uh, and one got accepted into four, one only applied to one and got into that uh, because it's, it's his hometown school and his mother was sick. He wanted to be close to his mother to assist her. And, and so, alhamdulillah, there, there's been a lot of progress. Uh, there have been schools actually modeling their curriculum after Zaytuna. Uh, one world-class university, Wogalong University in Australia, which is one of the top 50 universities on earth, is mo modeling their liberal, liberal arts community, uh, curriculum rather after Zaytuna. And, and several on the basis of Zaytuna and, and a couple other schools such as Harvard and Harvard College that they mentioned. And so uh, being a part of that has been uh, an incredible experience. It definitely has been demanding, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not part-time work. So uh, to do it and do it on a shoestring budget. And, but and to see the, the impact and to see the quality of the students and uh, to see them now going on and beginning to impact, have a really strong impact. One of our graduates has done incredible work. She's now doing her uh, PhD at Chicago Theological Seminary, did a master's there and then was a chaplain at University of Michigan and just has done amazing work. One of our graduates, so we have the, the those who go the graduate professional route, is as uh, imam of one of the largest masjids in Houston, Texas, and has had an incredible impact on that community, and is very, very uh, deeply loved by by all of the Muslims there, regardless of their orientation. And so to see that, and to see students going out in the world and having an impact, uh, one of the students who went to uh, the uh, Urbana-Champaign Law School is now, before she graduated, had three job offers, is now working uh, uh, in, in uh, New York with the Department of Justice. And so to see people going out there and making an impact on the world, it makes the sacrifices worth it. And, and to hopefully plant the seeds of what will an institution because we, we need strong institutions. We have, Muslims generally are individually strong. And a lot of times you'll find a Muslim, particularly someone that might come here from another land, knowing the difficulty and challenges, how sharp they had to be to get into their university back home because there was only one national university and you had to passed the sixth grade exams. If you didn't, you went to become an auto mechanic apprentice or learn how to bake bread at the local- Or, or go to the Sharia college. 
that's that's not yet. That's after the <laughs> high school exam. This is the sixth grade exam. And if you pass that, you go to the high school. And then if you pass the high school, you go to, depending on your grade, the lower scores can go to Sharia. <laughs> you can go down, but you can't go up. Yeah. And the, at the top, there's uh, medicine. So there's medicine, engineering, dentistry, and law and Sharia. Uh, engineering, law, Sharia at the bottom of the ladder. But realizing I had to learn two or three languages, I had to become really profound and proficient in mathematics. I'm a Muslim, I don't drink, I don't smoke. And look, look at this American, the guy only knows one language, doesn't know that well, uh, and doesn't, can't even solve basic math problems, and is an alcoholic. <laughs> but, 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 but those alcoholic, semi-literate Americans are, are the dominant force in the world for the time being. How does that happen? It happens because as Muslims, many times we're strong individuals, but we're operating in a weak institutional context. Mm. And that American might be individually weak, but is operating in a strong institutional context. And the strengths of, our, of an institution can negate the weakness of an individual, but it doesn't work the other way around. The strength of an individual uh, cannot negate the weakness of an institution. And so we need strong institutions. So uh, being part of what, inshallah, will become a strong institution that endures after my passing and after the passing of the, the current generation, of, of the founders of the college, even the current teachers, I think that to be a part of that is a great uh, honor and a great blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the sacrifices involved in terms of being pulled away from some other things, in terms of really being away from uh, the my wider family who are all on the East Coast, and those things, those things, it, it makes it worth it because we need strong institutions as Muslims and building an institution and building a strong institution is an, it requires an entirely different skill set than what it takes to build a strong individual. And, and so hopefully we'll get, we'll get both. We'll get strong individuals and we'll have strong institutions and then they'll be mutually reinforcing. So to answer the question in a short one sentence absence, Alhamdulillah, it's, it's been a wonderful and fantastic. And, and I think to go back to the unity question, people don't realize one of the keys to the success of Zaytuna is its diversity in the sense you have people who studied uh, Faraz Khan, Sheikh Faraz Khan, who studied in Jordan and just released a book on Maturidi theology. Yeah. I encourage everyone to, to uh, a translation of uh, Imam Sabuni's, not Muhammad Ali Sabuni, the Mufassir, but a more ancient Sabuni's Bidaya and uh, Maturidi uh, uh, theology and also has an incredible summation of the Kalam cosmological argument. So any, if you know any Muslim college students who are struggling with atheism and they're sincere, a lot of times that atheistic 
claim is really an emotional, an emotional rebellion. Sure. But if they are intellectually confused and they're sincere, I would highly recommend you read uh, Sheikh Faraz's summation of the Kalam cosmological argument as a appendix A of, of his translation of Sabuni's Bidaya. In any case, he trained in Jordan. You have uh, Dr. Abdullah Ali, who was trained in Morocco and graduate of the Graduate Theological Union, a very unique uh, independent thinking individual. And then you have uh, Dr. Omar Qureshi, uh, Loyola, Chicago, uh, Dr. Joel Qureshi, University of Chicago, and they studied in Syria, the Islamic studies in Syria. So you have Morocco, Jordan, Syria. You have Imam Tahir, Anwar, uh, one of the fifth teachers coming out of the Diobandi system. You have uh, Sheikh Hamza with his uh, Islamic and intellectual, I say Dr. Hamza Yusuf recently completed his PhD uh, with the, the Mauritanian uh, roots of his Islamic education. And we could go through the entire faculty and uh, you, you will find just incredible diversity and holding together for almost two decades now. And I think that's one of the great, and of course the diversity could be greater. And we pray that it is greater, especially in terms of uh, the gender diversity. So it's not perfect, but uh, it, it, it is there, it is real, and it is held together. And whenever we as Muslims can come together despite our differences, and stay together over an extended period of time. This is true historically and it's true contemporarily. Great things are going to happen. And so I see Zaytuna College really being a fruit of, of that unity. And may Allah, may Allah preserve it. And to be a part of it is a great blessing and honor. I mean, that was, that was a long sentence. But no, I'm glad you did that because I've seen it. Um, uh, to be honest, I had doubts at some points, you know, with some of the direction it was going. But what, what I don't know much about the fundraising side, which I can imagine is, you know, never ending. And, you know, having done that and, and having to do that myself. But one of the things that always strikes, there are two things that stick out for me. Number one is how other educational institutes have accepted Zaytuna. So, any, you know, I've been to many of these conferences and, and to see other seminaries and other professors and, and you know, being so excited, you know, that Zaytuna exists and, and to welcome, welcome Zaytuna into the family of, of higher learning in this country. That's been, yeah. you know, that's not an easy task. No, it's not. It's miraculous. Let me add, I forgot to mention Dr. Hatem also, who's coming from that very activist base, but also, uh, Western scholastic background, but also with Islamic training uh, in that mix of just keeping it together <laughs> despite the, the real challenges. It's a miracle. If, if you don't, you mentioned fundraising. I mean, we've, alhamdulillah, we never miss payroll. It's a miracle. I mean, it's an absolute miracle. If you won't, don't believe in miracles, I say go to Zaytuna. 
And I mean, actual miracles happen. I, I could I could mention, Allahumma Rasulillah, the the day we we bought the the school, one of our buildings from the Franciscan School of Theology. So they were getting so few students that they decided they have a they had the Berkeley campus and they had the uh, San Diego campus. They were going to consolidate everything in San Diego. So they're selling their building in Berkeley. We got an inside uh, heads up that it was going on sale. It never went on the market. None of the buildings we purchased ever one went on the market, but then they pulled it off and someone because their neighbors were protesting. They wanted to make condos and the neighbors were like, no. We wanted to stay as it is. Uh, and then someone gave us a heads up. But the day we signed that document to purchase it, there was a ceremony at the Franciscans and the Muslims and we're there and we're, we're signing it. The thing, or we're standing there for the photo op afterwards. And it's, it's on film. You can, and Sheikh Hamza is looking around the room. You'll see him going. And he looks there's a picture of St. Francis when he went to Egypt, mm. kneeling before Muhammad al-Kamil, al-Malikut al-Kamil. And then in the margins in Arabic, it says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wow, mashallah. And they, they actually gave us a, a replica of that as a gift. Very nice. And, nice. And so, I mean, there are little miracles like that. There are great miracles that happen. And I think the community should be proud. There's always, a, there, again, there are things people can find to disagree with, to point out, to be mad about. And, and that's real. We're human beings. But there's a whole lot that every Muslim in this country can be proud about concerning Zaytun and alhamdulillah alhamdulillah well the other thing i was going to say is the couple times i was first of all i was at the groundbreaking ceremony uh, for that property uh me and, and sheikh walid musad who, who's also been a guest on, on the podcast uh, and the couple times that i've i've been out there in the last few years one of the things that struck me is the students i've interacted with a lot of zaytuna students and they'll come up and you know that oh you said this thing in your talk about like maqasid and and you know, they'll get into the weeds. I was like, oh, you know, I never get that kind of reaction. I either get, oh, mashallah, the imam can speak English, you know, mashallah, that was amazing. <laughs> and I know it wasn't an amazing talk. It was just because I can speak English, you know, or, you know, they're upset because I didn't mention something that they want mentioned. But I very rarely do I get people to come up to me and engage in the sources and can you send us this source or this reference? Uh, you know, you said Teftazani said this and, or Al Asfahani said, they, where, where? and I was like, wow, you know, these, these guys, you know, I had to climb over the mountains and through the rivers and, you know, to, to study. And, and mashallah, these guys are in Berkeley, sipping yeah. lattes and, um, you know, learning. I was like, that's, that's not a bad yeah. setup. Alhamdulillah, now we have a master's program where they're really going deeply in, into the text. And there, there's a law and a philosophy kalam track. So they're, they're really getting in there. Alhamdulillah. Oh, Alhamdulillah. Allah is merciful. May Allah bless us, bless this community, bless us to, to see the virtue that we all represent. Everyone is contributing to, to, inshallah, what will be a positive outcome despite the differences. 
So Imam Zaid, I know uh, we're coming towards the end. So I want to ask you, usually I ask my guests for a last minute thought, but this time, because it's you, I want to be more specific. And I want to ask you, for me personally, for advice for me, because, you know, even though I've studied and all of that, I, I haven't really been on the scene for a long time. I was very happy not, not doing that. And by a series of, of circumstance and events, and of course, you know, Allah's qadr, uh, I am now much more on the scene, and, and I think I, I will be teaching and, and, and doing this type of work more in the coming you know, decade or so. So I would ask you, you know, personally, what kind of advice, you know, because you know me personally, and uh, you know my family, and, and we spent time together, we've traveled together, alhamdulillah. What kind of advice uh, would you give me as I, you know, try to do this work in my own little corner of the world? Be where Allah places you. Don't, don't place yourself on the scene and don't divorce yourself from the scene. Just if Allah places you on the scene as you anticipate will be the case, then give it its full right. And uh, listen to people. It's very important to listen to people. I think a lot of times we have difficulty uh, envisioning ourselves working with this or that party or group because we, we don't listen to them. Mm. And when we listen to people, we find out just how much we have in common and how much uh, our aspirations overlap. And uh, we're at the end of the day, we're really trying to accomplish the same thing. We're trying to serve this religion to the best of our ability and based on our personal tra uh, trajectory and experiences. And so by listening, listening to people, we can really find out just how much we share and how much we have in common and what the real problems are. A lot of times our assessment of the problem will be informed by the media. Mm. And so a story is really hot and we think, oh, this is what's happening. But if we listen to people, we'll see that it's an entirely different reality on the ground. So my advice for number one, as we mentioned, don't uh, impose yourself on the scene. Don't insert yourself in the scene. If Allah keeps you, as you mentioned, uh, are divorced from the scene, just take advantage of that opportunity of not being intricately involved in the, all of the things that the scene can drop on a person and do your study, do your continue your personal development, continue your writings and, and reflections and your teaching and mentoring of students so that they can possibly go out on the scene and impact far greater than you, not because they're necessarily any more learned or pious or anything, but they're more numerous. Mm. So there's one of you and there's 15 of them. Mm. And they might go out and collectively do far more than you, what you might have done. But if Allah does in, indeed place you in the scene, you give that its full right. And uh, you, you do everything you can to the, the best of your sincere assessment of what will be pleasing to Allah and what will, what will be reflective of the orientation and the teachings of our Prophet wasallam. What will be most conducive to helping the Muslims overcoming the sources of disunity and, and ineffect, any ineffectiveness or in some cases just plain mediocrity. Mm. What can help to overcome that? 
and, and give it its full right. And also, if a law gets you really, really involved in the scene, make sure you continue to make time for yourself and your family, for your wife, for your children, for your parents, that you have time that's dedicated to serving your parent, that you have time that's dedicated to providing really what they say quality time for your wife and your children, that you're able to get out and to hike and to bike and to get out into the outdoors, to picnic periodically and do those things that enriches your relationship uh, with your immediate family, that you don't allow the scene to pull you away from your family and to you don't allow the scene to uh, run yourself down so that you your health is compromised uh, because if you're if you're sick and in bed or infirm or just playing dead you can't benefit anybody so you know take care of yourself take care of your health take care of your wife because she's taking care of you and give time to your children because it, it makes a huge difference when, because they know your children are old enough and mature enough to know just how uh, the stresses and strains and how you're pulled. And they understand that. And despite that, when you can take a day off and say, listen, we're going hiking, we're going to the Appalachian Trail today. It, it means so much to them. Mm. And it's so valuable uh, that uh, it's something you just can't neglect. Sound advice, MMJ, as always. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy not to be in the scene uh, completely. So I, I'm, I'm happy where I am, alhamdulillah. Um, but I also feel, uh, you know, you, you got to do something to give back. So, so definitely. May, keep us in your, in your dua, inshallah. You, and you know, it's, you know when it's time. Allah show you when it's time. I think inshallah. Allah is showing you. And so steal yourself embrace yourself because sure. um, the scene can hit hard the scene is sometimes like mike tyson in his prime man. <laughs> the scene can can put it on you yeah. so you have to really get and ready for someone and as mike tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and so yeah the, and the scene has a really mean left hook so yeah. embrace yourself and bite down hard on your mouthpiece and get out there and Give it your best, and that's mm -hmm. all you can do. And okay. then, and and then, I, I would say finally, recognize that sometimes your best just isn't good enough. Mm. <laughs> and and so you can't beat yourself up when the scene's already beating you up, and then you beat yourself up because what you would like to see happening isn't happening. And you gave it your best shot, and it's like listen, sometimes your best shot is just not good enough. And that's what Allah decree, and you have to you have to accept that. That's that's the beauty of the individual sports, team sports. You can get really frustrated because someone didn't do their job. But track or boxing, I don't encourage boxing. It can be hazardous to your health. But you you can't you 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 accept it. You know, track you you ran your personal best, and you came in third place. And you're happy because you know, hey, I did my personal best. The guy was just faster. I can't do anything about that. 
you know, listen, I fought a good fight, but the guy just hits harder. His hands are faster. I didn't even see that punch that knocked me out. I didn't even see it coming. And he's just a better fighter. And, and so acknowledging that as long as you do your personal best, as long as you fight your best fight, then you can, you can rest contented. It just, my left wasn't strong enough. I just was one second too slow, but that was the fastest I ever ran. Mm. So just give it, if Allah puts you in situations that are extremely challenging, give it your very best shot. And then once you've done that, just say Allah didn't decree that this was going to happen despite my best shot. Alhamdulillah. Wise as always. Thank you, Imam Zaid, uh, for the advice and for making the time. I uh, enjoyed the conversation and um, I look forward to, you know, having a follow-up at some point, inshallah. Inshallah. Barakallah. May Allah bless you and bless your family. We miss you guys. Yeah, I have history with Tariq. People don't know that. And I think, man, you guys are supposed to be fighting each other. <laughs> but, you know, you know, alhamdulillah. It's good to reconnect. I think, you know, you connect with people for various reasons, you drift apart and to have that ability to come back together, I think is, is, is a wonderful gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So may Allah bless you, bless your family and uh, enjoy the picnic. Inshallah. Thank you, Imam We'll talk to you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.